Good day, everyone. Welcome to the CSU Relentless Gardener podcast. I am Colorado State University Horticultural Specialist, Linda Langelo, and joining me today is Jamie Sudler. And unfortunately, Franny Halpern, who is also an executive producer with Jamie of H2O Radio, cannot be here this morning. Now let's get to the heart of it where we explore the horticultural topic of water with H2O Radio and learn about some of the interesting experiences and research on water and how H2O Radio has changed people's lives. Good morning, Jamie. Oh, good morning, Linda. Thank you for inviting us. Oh, it's a pleasure. I, I really like reading your topics, like some of your more recent topics about ant species and lions. I mean, that's just, you need to tell the listening audience about the background and where you get this, the research to do these stories. This is fabulous to me. Well, uh, we spend a lot of time every week uh, we getting, getting uh, stories together and figuring out what's best for our listening audience. And uh, the way we do that is we, we, we call scientific journals, uh, news articles, um, and uh, j just follow things that are going on in the world of water, climate change, and uh, the environment uh, every single day. And then we uh, put together the stories and uh, we, we, we write them up and then we record on Sunday nights and release our uh, newscast This Week in Water every Sunday evening. And uh, so it, it's a labor of love. Uh, we, we, but, but we really do try to focus on recent scientific studies. And that ant study uh, where uh, a, a researcher, a couple of researchers from the University of Wyoming were studying lions in, the, in Kenya, and they uh, discovered that there was an invasive ant species that came from the Indian Ocean into Africa it's a big headed ant and it, it decimated the smaller ants that actually protected the trees that actually provided cover for lions when they're hunting. And so the, the trees were falling down and being eaten by elephants because this invasive ant species, which led to problems with lions, but they haven't concluded yet that lions are going to be um, affected negatively by this ant species, but uh, they have concluded that, well, lions are an endangered species anyway, but so that's one of the stories that we found and we we researched and we actually talked to the uh, lead researchers up at the University of Wyoming for essentially a, a one or two minute spot on our newscast. Wow, that's, this must take you all over the place. Indeed, they have. Um, well, we've been to Ecuador. We've been to Canada twice. Uh, uh, we we we've been to Lake Mead. We've been to up in Wyoming. Uh, we 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 get around. <laughs> that's a lot. Of, that's a lot of travel. That's uh, yes. But but it's fascinating. So what was your thought, you and Franny, when you both decided to say, "Hey, we're going to do this radio show." What was your real passion that drove you to talk about these topics? The real passion is water. Uh, we started in 2013 doing a weekly newscast about 
water and mainly water conservation and uh, and water. Now people like to use the term water efficiency. And uh, the reason we started in 2013 is we wanted to do something in radio. We actually weren't going to do, we weren't focused on the environment or water. We were focused on something else. Um, and But that fell through. It didn't work out. And that led to Franny and I, I sitting down and saying, what are we passionate about? And we both said, we're passionate about water. We're passionate about cons conservation. Uh, and so that led to, you know, we've been doing a weekly newscast, except maybe four or five times a year. We, we produce weekly since 2013. And it was the passion about water. And one of the things that really triggered that was in, in, in that year, California was going or just about to go through, and we probably sensed it intuitively, a major drought. And of course, there's been a major drought in the West since 20 or 2002. But people didn't realize at that point, 10 years ago, um, how long term that drought, this drought is going to be and why it's affected by climate change. And so we sort of came in uh, in 2013 covering this space and uh, a, a number of people are now covering it really well, especially in the in the American West. Uh, so uh, that that's what triggered us going into H2O Radio and doing a weekly newscast. That that's wonderful. I'm glad you I'm glad you're doing it because people need to know what's happening, not just here, but uh, the entire world, because we're all connected. You yes. know, it's just like those the ants and the tree and the lions. It's all it's a you can't say I live in the world by myself. I mean, you know, it's all connected. And, yeah. and, and you know, we've done a number of stories that on their face, they don't look like they're about water, but everything's connected to water. There's nothing that isn't you can't connect to water. Well, you know, we're human beings. So what do we have? We have what, 90% of water in our bodies. I mean, you know, plants are no different. Animals are no different. So, you know, there you are. So. Yes. So, 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 what is your background as far as you're reading all these scientific journals and uh, that that I'm sorry that requires a lot of time, you know. Well, luckily, some of the scientific articles we read have been uh, issued by a university that does a press release that starts to explain it much better than some of the scientific language. But I also must say that a lot of scientists are coming around to realizing they don't get their message out unless they speak <laughs> everyday English. So that's so we we neither of us have a background strictly in science. I I uh, was a lawyer, and uh, I, there are a lot of skills that a lawyer brings to being a journalist. Franny actually runs a design. Uh, a branding and digital arts firm. Uh, she has done that, and she her 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 training was actually in college was landscape architecture. Mine in college, of course, was pre law, whatever. But uh, so th those are our backgrounds. I think both of our backgrounds bring bring us from different points of view on on articles and on subjects. Well, it's always nice to hear, you know what your background is, it gives a little more depth to 
when you do do another show the next yes. time people really right yeah so what what are a couple of your favorite uh shows that you have done well um let me start with the one that uh introduced us to you uh when we went to we went to akron colorado a few years ago after akron had been hit by this incredibly damaging uh uh micro burst uh I, I don't think it was a derecho but i it could have been i can't remember but it was a micro burst that just decimated people's gardens in the town of akron they're you know they're they're they're, they're where they grow vegetables and uh so we went out there to cover that and we met you in akron and uh we we, we learned that uh, there were people actually doing what we would we used to call victory gardens this was during the covid times and uh, they were growing crops to share them. And uh, in fact, as I remember, your program was called Grow and Give. Mm -hmm. And um, so we met with this woman uh, there in Akron. You know, Akron's a tiny little town on the Eastern Plains. Uh, I, I would guess there's less than a thousand people. I can't remember. Um, but uh, we met with uh, Carrie, uh, Carrie Colby in Akron, and she explained to us that she was growing all these vegetables and she would give them to a food bank or to her church, uh, the excess that she had for her family. But the, that storm with 100 mile power winds decimated her, her vegetable gardens and brought down trees. And uh, so we were interviewing her about that experience and also about the Give and Grow program, that, that, the Grow and Give program that you all are involved with. And uh, what, what was really fascinating about that story was First of all, it was a wartime strategy that started in the First World War and then the Second World War, but it seemed to carry over into the COVID times. And, um, you know, the passion with which Carrie grows her vegetables and gives them away was just so clear. And she was passing it on to her kids. Uh, a young daughter was helping her very much. So that, that, that story uh, really struck us. And, you know, it's not easy to get from Denver to Akron. It's like three hours or something. And uh, uh, but it was well worth the time and the effort to, to, to explain, you know, how people give to other people, especially in times of not only COVID, but then this horrible storm. So it was that was a great, great, great adventure. Well, I'm, I'm glad you came and I'm glad you, you featured it. The Grow and Give program uh, was initiated by some of my colleagues in CSU, horticultural colleagues. And, uh, you know, it was a perfect opportunity to get more people to join into it after that derecho. And yes, it was a derecho, uh, straight line winds for three days. And then uh, then the microburst was a part of it, which can happen within that, which is you think, well, straight line winds are enough. So, uh, but, and I was, I started the community gardens out here because that's kind of my passion about feeding people, it's my thing. And so to teach them how to grow, it gives them the independence to, if something terrible happens in their life and they don't have the kind of income they need to feed their family, they can feed themselves and their family and then they can donate whatever. So that's, you know, education is very important. Yes, yes, very. And. and uh, Want me to continue? Yes, go ahead. Sorry. 
That's okay, but I, I wanted to bring up that uh, we did a story of, uh, I did a story and Franny assisted me. It's usually the other way around, I'm assisting Franny. But uh, I did a story about um, cash for grass programs in urban areas in the West. And uh, we, we highlighted a woman in Thornton, Colorado, just north of Denver. But we also examined cash for gas program, grass, cash for grass programs in Phoenix and Las Vegas and Los Angeles, the Los Angeles area and Denver and, and including Aurora. And uh, we wanted to figure out, you know, this was about five years ago. It's a very timely issue though, but, but four or five years ago, we were examining why aren't some cities in the West encouraging people to take out their turf, their Kentucky bluegrass, because it would save a lot of water. And uh, what is really interesting what we found, uh, we found that uh, uh, cities like Los Angeles and Las Vegas, uh, they, were, they were encouraging people and paying people money to take out their grass. Um, and uh, that's mainly because in those areas, they would water year round. And so there was a cost efficiency to paying people to take out their grass. But then uh, in Denver and Phoenix, interestingly enough, they weren't doing that. And they both Denver Water and um, Phoenix said, that, well, our, our, our customers are taking out their grass anyway. Even if without us paying them, there's a shift to taking out grass in urban areas. Now, the reason this is such a timely and interesting story is that yesterday, the Colorado Senate uh, passed a bill that would uh, uh, ban uh, what's called non-functional turf in commercial and municipal settings. It doesn't have any effect on residential settings. Yesterday would be, uh, I can't, we're, we're February 5th, 2024. Um, and uh, so that bill is moving through the Colorado legislature to, to take out uh, non-functional Turf. Uh, some people object to that word or that term, uh, but uh, um, the, the point of, of course is to save water. And interestingly enough, the Colorado legislature isn't doing anything right now that I'm aware of about efficiency in agricultural use of water. Lots of farmers are, but we've done a story about that, which I can talk about on the Eastern Plains. Um, but uh, uh, interestingly enough, the, they're not doing anything right now, as far as I'm aware, with agricultural efficiency. Um, they have done things in the past to encourage farmers not to plant for a while and to save their water or to lease it. But um, uh, but that turf story was interesting because this one woman we interviewed in Thornton, Colorado, was so motivated and so passionate about the water savings just on her small little piece of land that she had. It just, it, it made her feel so good that she had xeriscaped and gotten all the plants and put them in. And she was calculating uh, the amount of water she would save every year. And uh, it, it, was, it, was, it was heartwarming to do the story, focusing on her. I'm glad. I. I'm glad you cover those kinds of topics, and I'm glad to hear that, you know, more and more people are are joining in. Um, I yeah. think I, I think uh, I started in my own home, although I'm not in Denver. I'm out on the Eastern Plains, and I am 
have ripped up turf, uh, you know, medians in a lot of places. And people see that and within town, uh, I have requests to give them suggestions and help them do the same, which, you know, I'm glad. You just, yes. are there any other really interesting stories that you care to share? Oh, sure. Um, it, on the topic of conservation, uh, we did a story about farmers on the Eastern Plains. They're dryland farmers uh, um, near, not too far from Burlington and not too far from Flagler. And uh, we went and interviewed these a bunch of farmers about how they've switched from tillage, from tilling the soil um, every year and uh, then, you know, covering it with pesticides. They've switched from doing that. They're, they're now no tilling at all, and they plant cover crops. And uh, the fascinating thing about the science of that, and CSU has done so much wonderful research about this. Um, uh, actually, we went to a conference in Burlington about no-till farming, and there was easily 200 farmers from Kansas, Nebraska, and Colorado there uh, attending this conference. And I'm sure it's even gotten bigger now, but the no-tillage movement is really spreading. And it's the, the amazing things about it is it conserves water because water doesn't run off. Water goes, it infiltrates into the soil, it, 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 into the grooves of the soil that, 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 that are formed not only by the plants that are cover crops, but also by worms that the worms really return to the soil and worms create these pathways for water to go into the soil and then stay in the soil as opposed to running off. And the benefits are just so amazing because um, uh, the, the, the soil doesn't dry out. It doesn't blow away. The cover crops hold it in place when they're, they're not growing their regular crop for, 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 uh, for, for the year, like wheat or millet or corn. And, um, uh, the, the soil doesn't get hot and uh, it stays much cooler. And so the benefits of no-till farming uh, by these dryland farmers were just so amazing. And once again, once again, I have to say that the thing, the common thread here is the passion you see. Um, the, these farmers in, in, uh, in Eastern Colorado, where they don't irrigate, they don't pull water from a river, they depend on what falls from the sky, and, and their, their lives depend upon what falls from the sky, but they were so convinced that no-till and cover cropping was the way to go, they actually faced some opposition among farmers in their own communities. And some of them back then, uh, three or four or five years ago, were, were not ostracized, but they weren't, they were just, they, they felt uh, uh, like they were walled off from their, the other farmers who were, you know, doing the traditional uh, fertilization and tillage, and um, uh, that was, but they still continued. The no-till farmers still continued because they knew it was the right thing to do. I have seen more and more no-till. So there's really been a, a larger growth over the last few years. Uh, there, yeah. there, are still, there are still some holdouts. I had one client in Amherst and he bought a land, a piece of land across the, from his uh, property. And uh, I went there to see his trees and he started telling me about what the other farmer had done that, that had sold him the land. And 
And uh, he was absolutely amazed. And he said he would have never thought in a, in a million years that no-till would do everything that it does. But it makes great sense. Like your, your, your wonderful description of the worms and what they do. Yeah. It's, it's absolutely spot on. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. It's just amazing. I mean, worms are amazing things. Yeah. They're, they're there for a reason. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't, I don't think that, you know, the normal person sitting here in, in Denver, Colorado understands how important worms are. Oh, yeah. They do a lot, you know, yes. part of the, the massive, uh, microbial activity that goes on in soil period yes oh, it has yeah. its own it has its own ecosystem separate from everything else yes and, and it's kind of like we depend on air and water while plants depend on soil yes yes yeah it's remarkable yeah yeah is there any other uh favorite stories that that uh, you'd like to tell well we just released a story on Sunday, and uh, it doesn't have to do with water conservation, but it has to do with how we study water, in this case, ice, to see what is how the climate is changing. And uh, so we went out, Franny and I went out to um, a National Science Institute uh, facility in Lakewood at the Federal Center in Lakewood, Colorado. Which, which stores ice cores that have been drilled in Antarctica and uh, <clears throat> up in uh, Ar the Arctic. And, and, and Greenland, they drill ice cores and a lot of them go to, to Europe. But in this facility in Lakewood, they have uh, a huge refrigerated warehouse and it's at 40 degrees below Celsius. 40 degrees below uh, freezing Celsius. I can't remember what that translates to in Fahrenheit. It's probably about, it's probably close to 40 degrees below zero Fahrenheit. Um, <clears throat> and they have ice cores there that have been drilled from these places all over the world and they store them there. And then scientists get samples of these ice cores and then study them to determine what was the climate like in you know, 800,000 years ago. And so we were there, and when we were there, there was a group of college students from Colorado College who were also touring the ice, we call it an ice library, essentially. And, um, and it was remarkable because they take you into the refrigerated room and they warn you, you know, it's going to be really cold and you can only stay in this room for two minutes and then we're going to get you out because it is so cold. And, you know, I just brought my everyday parka. And I'm running around with a microphone and recording equipment, and, and I'm just freezing my tail end off. And uh, we get to this one portion of this ice library where they don't know how old the ice is, but they suspect that the ice they've drilled is 4 million years old. And the reason they don't know yet is they haven't been able to study it enough. But they also, uh, it, it, they also, they also can't, you can't really drill down that far to get four million year old ice in the Arctic and Antarctic or Greenland. What you do get uh, uh, is you can get what ice that's been pushed up from four million years ago. And uh, that's what they think they have, but they're pretty sure it's four million. They don't know precisely. 
But so that was really fascinating. And then we went to a lab at CU Boulder, Colorado University Boulder, where they are actually studying the isotopes of water in, in that ice. They get the ice from the Lakewood facility and they study isotopes to determine what was the temperature of the planet, the atmosphere of the planet, um, um, you know, 400,000 years ago, 300,000 years ago. And they're the, they're the ones who, in conjunction with other scientists around the country who determine, you know, what, what is carbon and other um, uh, greenhouse gases doing to our uh, climate. And um, they're the ones who can correlate the uh, increase of carbon to 420, I think it's 420 parts per million, it might be 422 now, um, to the temperature uh, uh, that existed 800,000 years ago. And they can show that this recent, the spike recently in uh, the, like, since humans have been burning fossil fuels is incredible. Is it, 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 there's been no other spike like that ever in what they can study and infer from the evidence in the ice. And so it was, it was a great, it's a great story and I encourage everybody to take a listen to it. Um, nobody knows, nobody knows that there's this ice library in West Denver. And it's just rows and rows and rows of ice core drillings that they've, that they preserve and uh, they, they keep very cold. <laughs> Wow, that's that's fascinating. Uh, I I wonder, you know, what kind of bacteria and life forms they they're gonna find in in those pieces of ice. Wow, that's I a really interesting question. There are other labs that do uh, testing on the air bubbles in the ice. And uh, and I don't know about bacteria. I don't know who's testing bacteria or looking at, but I'm sure there is. That's that's amazing research. It yeah, really is. And yeah, and yes, yes um, you know, in that temperature, I would think that your lungs would be affected first. You know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All I know is I was happy to get out. <laughs> uh, yeah. No kidding. Oh wow. Well, if you have anything final to say to the listening audience. Uh, no, all our stories can be uh, uh, accessed at our website, which is h2oradio.org. And uh, we're a nonprofit. We exist solely on the benefit of donations. Um, and uh, you can also get our stories on soundcloud.com, uh, h2oradio. And uh, I, uh, I really appreciate the opportunity. And uh, it's always fun. It's, it's it's more than fun. That's that's an understatement to talk to people who are passionate about water and, and the environment and climate change. It's just it, it gives one a great deal of hope, actually. You you do. A lot of your stories really are very uplifting and inspirational. I will I will tell you that I you know, I don't remember when I first started listening to you, but I've been listening to you for several years now. Oh, great. And I, I share them on my Facebook page and I share them out to people because I just think it's absolutely accurate information and they need to know. They really need to know. Yeah. How, yeah. how else How else are they going to know if, if you're not doing that? And I'm thankful that you are doing what you're doing because 
it it is a very important job. Well, thank you very much. Yeah. It, it, uh, that, that, that warms my heart. <laughs> well, it, it is. I mean, you know, if if we have no water or less water or dirty water, then what are we going to do? Or, you know, it's so toxic. What are we going to do? Yes. So, I, yeah, I can't say that enough. I just, I can't. <laughs> right, right, right. It's a, it's a huge concern across the globe. Yes, yes. And if we don't start and continue forward uh, in making improvements, then, well, it's our own fault, I, I would say, well, you know. Right. right. Well, thank you, Jamie. This has been wonderful. And tell Franny, I'm sorry she couldn't join us, but maybe we'll have to have you both come back another time. Maybe. Wonderful. Okay. Wonderful. And a thank you for the listening audience. Tune in next time when we get to the heart of the matter of another horticultural topic. <laughs>